right, good afternoon and welcome to Hope Church. We are finally here. Today is the day of our launch, right? Um, we launch our Life on Mission campaign. It is the uh, six-week or approximately 40-day campaign that we are doing churchwide. So um, take a look at this short clip. For the next six weeks, we'll be going through, as Pastor Q announced, Tim Harlow's study together. Everyone in their various life groups or small groups, right? You can also do it individually if you're not part of a group. Just make sure to ask Pastor Q for um, Tim's uh, instructional uh, accompanying videos. There are these short video clips that go with the study, so ask PQ for that if you're doing it alone. All the other life group leaders should have those videos. So today, I'm actually um, doing the overview, which is session one, in essence, Life on Mission. And I'm basically setting the stage for what's to come, what this study is going to be for these next six weeks. And I'll be doing that by looking at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, and also the verse Acts 1, verse 8. Did you show that on the screen? Oh, am I not? Okay, that's the title slide. So yes, today I'm doing the overview, Life on Mission Session 1, basically. And looking, we're going to be looking at these two particular passages. And if you look, there are five action steps that we are going to be learning. So one action step for each week. Um, and today, um, the overview is not counted here, but there's one, two, three, four, five for the next five weeks. Connect, serve share, grow, and pray. And if you look at the parentheses along the side, you'll also notice the words fellowship, service, evangelism, discipleship, and worship. You should be familiar with this because these are the five purposes in Rick Warren's famous book, The Purpose Driven Life, which we're familiar with because our church has also done this campaign as well in the past. And so Rick Warren's um, The Purpose Driven Life, the five purposes of our life, really lines up well with this life on mission, mission um, notion that we're going to be looking into. And so with the word that we receive for 2021, we want to study and we want to posture ourselves in such a way um, to be equipped to look outward. Remember we kept talking about looking beyond and not being inward focused anymore. We want to focus on being the light, being a city on a hill, being salt and light, being fishers of men, going out there and seeking and, and um, being uh, Jesus' hands and feet and being this witness. So looking and focusing outward. And as Christians, as the short video uh, clip um, showed us, as Christians, we've all been given a mission. We've all been given a mission. And we should be living it out. Living out our life on mission. So in the foreword that was written by Rick Warren, 
This is the forward, which is at the very beginning um, of the book, Tim Harlow's book. Rick Warren says this. He says, the bottom line is this. If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, you were made for a mission. God is calling you to join him in his mission in the world. No matter what kind of background and experiences you've had, God has planned to use it to reach others for Jesus' sake. You cannot be all God intends for you to be until you accept your life mission. And in the introduction of his book, Tim begins with this line. He says, your mission, should you choose to accept it. Now, that's a very famous line, right? Everybody's very familiar with that. It was, did you know that the original TV show, um, the program for a Mission Impossible, I think aired in 1966? That's a really long time ago. Yes, I was not alive then, so I don't remember it. But, you know, they do reruns and things like that on CBS. But there was a very famous TV show called Mission Impossible, and this famous line, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is how the TV show began and also the reboot, the movies with Tom Cruise. I've actually not seen any of those movies with Tom Cruise in it, but um, I hear that's kind of how it begins. Well, what you never see in the TV shows or in the movies is you never see someone choosing not to accept the mission. You're not going to see anyone be like, mm, pass, I'm going to wait for the next mission. You don't see that. Or, ah, I'm not feeling it today. Uh, <coughs> I'm calling sick. Um, yeah, I'll get the next mission. You never see that, right? Because it is, um, it's just assumed, right? It is an assumption that if you're an agent, it's your job to take the mission. If you're an agent, it's your job to accept the mission. It's not really an option. So in the same way, if you're a Christian, we are Christians, right? If you're a Christian, you must accept the assignment of living a life on mission. It's not an option. You, we have to accept this mission given to us by God. So what exactly is our mission? What exactly is this mission? Well, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, when he's talking to Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, the really short guy who climbs up the tree. And Jesus says to him, he says that he came to seek and to save the lost. That's his mission. That's why he's here and that's why he came. Jesus says out of his own you know, mouth and his own words, he says that his mission is to seek and to save the lost. That was God's mission through his son, Jesus Christ. John 3.16, very, very famous verse. We all know. We can recite it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We know this. We're very familiar with this verse. And so we, as God's children, we join him, our Heavenly Father. We join God in his mission, which is to save the world because he loves the world so much. And we are to be about our Father's business, right? We are to be about our Father's business. Many, um, I know many Asian uh, second generation, our immigrants, uh, when we came, our parents owned stores, our parents owned, you know, businesses, and as children, a lot of us had to work in our parents' kages, it's called, you know, a lot of us had to work in our parents' shops or, or be part of the business, maybe because our parents didn't speak English well, uh, we had to read the mail for them, or we had to do a lot of the uh, technical paperwork for them, or to legal stuff, or, you know, financial stuff, things like that. Um, some of us had to do that. So, as children, 
whether we enjoyed it or we chose it or not, we were, uh, many times, we were about our father's business. We were about our parents' business and what they were doing. True, right? So there's a person named Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker is known as the father of business studies. He is known as the father of modern management. Who's heard of Peter Drucker? If you've studied business at all, then I'm sure you're familiar with the name and you've probably read some of his stuff. I did not study business, so this is all new to me. But he's known as like the modern you know, management guru who wrote a lot of stuff about that. And he once was asked this question, what is the most important ingredient to a successful business? What is the most important ingredient to a successful business? Peter Drucker was asked this, and his response was quite simple. He said, every day you have to ask yourself two questions. One, what business are we in? And two, how's business? So how's business going? So one, what business are we in? And two, how's business? So how's business going, right? Too often, I think people forget what their business is. It gets muddled and lost um, with competing interests and now more than ever with the pandemic and such, people are trying to diversify their products. Um, they're trying to, um, you know, have market appeal, wide ranging uh, to various different age groups, ethnic groups and whatnot. And so they're di diversifying their products and their pitch and their advertisements and such like that. You all have seen commercials, right? I have. You've seen commercials where you can't figure out what company it is, and you can't figure out what in the world they're trying to sell or what their product is. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I've seen commercials where you're like, huh. A lot of these Super Bowl commercials, I, I can't, I, I, I don't understand the concept behind them. Unless they blatantly tell me, you know, Nike or something, a lot of times I miss it. Like, what, what was that? What are they advertising? And it gets muddled in, in um, just trying to diversify and, and for this market appeal. As a church, let me ask this question. What business are we in? We as a church, as an organization, as an entity, what business are we in? Well, we're in the business of obeying the Great Commission. As Sung um, read from Scripture and prayed earlier, we're in the business of obeying the Great Commission. We're in the business of loving God and loving neighbor. That's the business we're in. So... How's business? How are we doing? How are we doing? How's business going with this whole great commission of making disciples, of loving God and loving our neighbor well? How's business? To take this analogy even further, I recently learned what a P&L statement is or a P&L sheet is. Uh, we were trying to refinance our mortgage. We were looking into it. And the mortgage company, um, the agent, whoever, sent me an email saying, oh, requesting a P&L statement for Hoon's business. I didn't know what that was. I, she just assumed I understood the, the technical jargon. I was like, what the heck is a P&L? So I emailed my accountant, and I said, what's a P&L statement, and can you get me one? Right? So basically, a lot of you guys know what it is. It's a document that outlines your profit and loss. It's a statement that, you know, just kind of lists out your profit and loss for a business. So thinking about our church and the business that we're about, the business that we're in, it made me wonder, what does Hope Church's P&L statement look like? What does our church 
if we were to draw up or have an accountant, accountant draw up a PL statement for Hope Church, what would it look like? I'm not talking about our finances. I think we actually did have to draw up a PL statement when we were trying to buy and invest in the gathering place building. But so I'm not talking about our church finances. I'm talking about our business of making disciples, of seeking and saving the lost. I'm talking about that business. We don't want to have a profit and loss column. We don't want to win some and lose some. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4 says that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. No, no losses, profits, losses. He wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And that's the heart of our God. And again, as his children, we're about our father's business. And we have the same heart that our father does. So let's look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Uh, if you have your Bibles, or you can read it along here. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What motivated Jesus when we read these verses? What motivated him was compassion. Compassion is like the number one adjective word to describe um, just Jesus' nature. He is a compassionate one. He saw that the people were harassed. He saw that the people were helpless, uh, hopeless, and he had compassion on them. So this word, this word compassion here, is very difficult to translate from the original Greek into our everyday uh, English language. It's a very difficult uh, word to translate. No single English word can adequately quickly convey the original Greek meaning of the word compassion. So in English, we translate it compassion. But in the original Greek, what it really means is um, it's, it's like a literal, the literal meaning in the Greek is like a gnawing in the stomach. It's like a physical kind of feeling. It's a gnawing in the stomach. It's not just um, an emotion. One Bible commentator defines it this way. He says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he hurt in the pit of his stomach, being moved within the deepest part of his being. So it wasn't like, oh, those poor souls. Oh, that's too bad. It wasn't like that, but it was like this, this visceral, like this physical, ugh, you know, this pain that he experienced of, of this compassion. And I believe that only God can give us this level of compassion. Otherwise, Without God, it will be just, oh, poor them. Oh, yeah, that's, that's too bad. Look at them. You know, they're lost. But with God, this kind of compassion, the true Greek um, original word meaning, is like this gut punch that you get, right? This level of compassion is what we're talking about here and is the word used to describe Jesus here. So it's more than just a human emotion. It's where it physically hurts. It's like getting um, kicked in the stomach. And it's, it's what happened to Ginny. I remember this. For those of us who went to uh, Thailand a few years ago on the mission trip where I think there was like 27 of us. It was huge. Uh, families, kids, children, we all went. We went with Lana, who um, is the founder of Life Impact International. We went to no man's land. 
No Man's Land is located on the border of uh, Thailand and Burma or Myanmar. And it's this place where it's all these like shacks and um, shanty type of place where all these really, really, really poor people live. Lots of children there too. And it's No Man's Land. And I remember that Lana and one of her um, helpers, um, guide, took us there, took the, all 27 of us there. And we stood on this like bridge way. It was like an overpass over the river that kind of separates um, Burma and um, Thailand. And they told us to stretch out our hands and to pray over no man's land. And so we're all there. There's 27 of us, even all the little kids. They're like, you know, crying out. And we're, you know, stretching out our hands and we're praying. And knowing Ginny, you know, her voice is pretty loud. She's the loudest. And then all of a sudden, she collapses. She just collapses and drops to the ground. And so I still remember um, one of the uh, guides who was um, helping us, he runs to Ginny thinking that, you know, something happened, like she had a stroke or fainted or something like that. But I knew, I knew it was exactly this that we're talking about. As Ginny stretched out her hand and as we were praying, she felt God's heart. She felt this compassion that I'm talking about here. She felt it in her gut. She just got kicked in the gut, and she just fell to the ground, and she was just doubled over in pain. I don't know if you guys remember this, or maybe, maybe I was the only one with my eyes open, and I saw this, and the rest of you guys were, you know, really uh, praying hard, but anyway, I saw this, and, you know, the guy uh, was like, are you okay, are you okay, and I kind of smiled because I know Ginny, and I know that she was okay, so that's what I mean when you experience this, this kind of gut punch um, compassion. Jesus sees how lost the people are, and he's moved with compassion for them. This gut-wrenching empathy for their spiritual condition, that they are lost. We will never share the good news of Jesus with others until we truly believe that they need to hear it. And we will never truly believe that they need to hear it unless our hearts are broken for them. Does that make sense? We will never share the good news of Jesus with others until we truly believe that they need it, that they are literally dying without it. And we will never truly believe that they need it, that they're dying to hear this unless our hearts are broken for them. It's that line from the popular um, praise and worship song, break our hearts for what breaks yours. You know, a lot of times we flippantly, we just sing our, our songs, but break our hearts for what breaks yours, you know? Every time we sing that song or that particular line, that um, um, praise line, it's like getting kicked in the gut. How can we sing that phrase, that, that line, break our hearts for, for what breaks yours, without getting or feeling this punch? in our stomach of, of just how much God's heart hurts for the lost. David Wilkerson, David Wilkerson is, I know Pastor Q is one of his all-time absolute favorite preachers. He's famous, uh, he's, the, uh, he's, he's um, gone to be with the Lord now, but he was the famous pastor of the Times Square Church in New York City, um, and he shared this in a sermon this is David Wilkerson, picture of him. He shared this in a sermon about living in a small Pennsylvania town. This is before he moved to New York City. And he said this. 
In those days, I would walk into the woods near our home and weep for hours over the souls in New York City. I owned a little green Chevrolet, and each week as I drove it to the city to minister, I wept for the entire three-hour drive. Sometimes I had to pull off to the side of the road because my heart was so broken for the lost. I'd stop the engine, walk into the woods, fall on my face, and weep. This is someone who understands compassion, who understands the literal Greek word compassion. How many of us have ever wept like this for the lost? How many of us have ever got a gut punch and, and wept like this for the lost? Before I began my message today, you guys all watched this like a real quick 30-second clip, um, this video. When we think of missionaries or we think about living in the mission field, we automatically think of foreign lands, right? True, right? We automatically think of foreign lands, what we traditionally label as the third world countries, right? We imagine huts. We imagine really, you know, poor people. We imagine... Um, different uh, uh, cultures and ethnicities, races, um, far off land, you know, again, traditionally what we would think of third world countries. But if we are all on a mission, how can we all leave everything and go to mission? If our thinking and our definition of mission is always out there and we're all supposed to be on mission, that means we're all supposed to go out there. But how can we do that? Who would be left here? You know, it's not even feasible, practical, logical, or possible that everybody would go to these so-called third world countries, right, when we think about mission. We can't. It's not possible. So we need to reorient our thinking. We need to um, retrain our minds so that when we hear the word mission or mission field, we immediately don't start to think that, but we think about our backyard, that we think about the local grocery store, that we think about my workplace, the image of my, um, my uh, office and my cubicle comes to mind, my neighborhood, my community center, my, the gym that I go work at. We need to reorient. When you think mission or the mission field, for those images to immediately come to our mind. Let's look at uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the other verse I want to look at. This is a very well-known, famous verse. Um, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I know much has already been said and preached about this particular text, this verse, but it bears repeating. Jesus tells his disciples this right before he's taken up to heaven. Right? And these are pretty specific instructions. He's naming very specific geographic locations, right? He says Jerusalem, he says Judea, he says Samaria. These are actual, you know, physical locations. So he's pretty specific. And Jesus is telling us also through this to first be witnesses, to be missionaries in our own local towns and our local cities, our own neighborhoods, communities, and workplaces and schools. That's where we're to begin, right? If you look at this verse, that's where we begin. But for some reason, when we think missions, again, we all want to jump ahead to the ends of the earth part, right? We want to begin outward and move in. We want to begin with the ends of the earth and then maybe move closer to home, closer to home, closer to home. Why is that? 
when clearly in this verse that everybody's familiar with, he starts here where you are and moves outward, outward, outward. So that's very puzzling to me, right? Um, we like to jump to the ends of the earth. Jesus says that we're to be his witnesses. And so as witnesses, what do we do? What do witnesses do? They provide testimony, right? So we're to testify. That is our job. That is what we're supposed to do. We're not judge, jury. We're not the prosecutor. We're not the attorneys here. We're witnesses. We're to be his witnesses. And so as witnesses, we testify. We have a testimony. We testify about the goodness of Jesus, what he has done for me in my life, how my life was before I met him, who Jesus is to me. We testify. And that testimony must be lived out in our daily life among the, among the people that we encounter every day. My family, my neighbors, my coworkers, my children, the, those that you encounter every day. It's so much easier to pack a bag and fly off to a foreign land for a short-term mission trip. And then you can live and act a certain way, live and act very Christian for that limited time that you're out there. You know, maybe for one week or two weeks, depending on how long the mission trip is. And, you know, that's just your whole thing is you can live and act very Christian-like and be a Christian in that way for that limited time. It's much harder to live and act the Christian way every day among the people that you work with, among your family members, among your next-door neighbor, when you're fighting with them about who's going to shovel this part of the snow, who's going to park their car here, uh, who's going to, you know, cut your grass or they stepped on your flower bed or whatever. It's much harder to do it here. So maybe I was thinking that's why we prefer the far away mission field and not our local mission field because it's easier to go out there, right? It's easier to be a witness out there. They don't know you. They're not going to see you again after two weeks. For two weeks, I can be super Christian. I can be very, very Christian for two weeks with people I don't know. But can we do it here, locally, it, with the people that we are, you know, um, coming up, bumping up against every single day? But you might be thinking, the Great Commission says that we're to make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say just people in your backyard. It says to all nations, not just our nation. All nations. So how are we to reach those people that do live in those remote areas in the huts and, and maybe, you know, far, far away unless we go to the ends of the earth? You know, people still need to go out there. Well, actually, I have news for you. The nations have come to us. The nations have come to us. You, all you need to do is look at the latest, you know, geographic census and statistics and all that kind of stuff. They are here. The nations are here. We don't always have to travel abroad to them. So for those of you who insist on witnessing to diverse people's group, now my heart is for diverse, not just Americans. Uh, it's really for people's group, you know, for diverse people's group. For those of you who insist on that, look at this. I heard about this on the news a few uh, days ago. You see the date on there, right? It's February 17, right? Ethnically diverse cities in the U.S. And this really caught my attention. Our neighborhoods, towns, and cities are very diverse with immigrants from all over the world. Any college campus, any university, you know there are international students from the remotest, the most remote places on our show up in our university campuses, right? Literally from the ends of the earth. And this company... 
this company, they rank the ethnic diversity of over 500 of the largest U.S. cities each year. And they rank it, if you look at the bottom, they rank it according to three things. Ethnicity, race, also to the language that is spoken, and also their birthplace. So they were born abroad, not, you know, born in the U.S. They are ranked in these um, three um, areas, right? You will not believe which cities are in the top ten. You ready? You ready? All right, next slide. Can you see this? You can't see it? It's real blurry on this side, you guys. Try to look over here. This, this LCD projector, no good. <laughs> we need an upgrade on this LCD projector. Look over here if you can see it. I'll, I'll tell you. In the top 10, and this, remember, this is out of over 500 of the largest cities in the U.S., four cities are from Montgomery County. Do you, can you see that? Four cities are in, the, in over 500 cities that are ranked. I'm like, I don't know if I believe this. You know, I was like, eh. So, I, you know, I did some background checking to this company and if they're legit and stuff. But they do this ranking every year. The, in the top ten alone, you will see four Montgomery County cities. You'll see Gaithersburg ranked number two. You see Germantown ranked number three. You see Silver Spring ranked number five. And you see Rockville ranked number seven. In Montgomery County. Can you believe that? I was shocked. Are you, are you as shocked as I am? That is shocking. The nations are here. We are as diverse as you can get. That is amazing to me. Absolutely just um, blew my mind. It's common knowledge now among missions organizations that America makes up one of the largest mission fields in the world. But we have to accept it. America now makes up one of the largest mission fields in the world. The U.S. used to send missionaries out to other countries. Now other countries are sending them here. The Barna Research Group does all this research. Um, Barna Research Group, uh, uh, you hear Pastor Q, me, and I'm sure you've heard many preachers uh, quote their statistics all the time. They're a very, very famous, uh, well-known group, and they do all research and statistics that are related to Christianity, um, any way related to Christianity in the U.S. And they say, here's what they say. With its 195 million unchurched people, America has become the new mission field. The unchurched population in the United States is so extensive that were it a nation, it would be the fifth largest on the planet. Researchers and analysts describe North America as the world's third largest mission field. Jesus tells us that we will be his witnesses, that we are to go. I want to show you a few of these. John 20, 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is a word to all of us. The Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he says, and this is a New Century version, I don't care about my own life. The most important thing is that I complete my mission, the work that the Lord Jesus gave me to tell people the good news about God's grace. And then finally, in Luke chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, Jesus casts out a demon, uh, lots of demons actually, from this man and heals him essentially of these demons. And the man wants to follow Jesus. He's like, oh, you know, let me go with you. And he wants to follow Jesus. And here's what it says. The man whom Jesus had healed begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, 
go back home and tell people how much God has done for you. So the man went all over town, his town, he went back to his hometown, telling how much Jesus had done for him. He was a witness to his hometown. He didn't go and follow Jesus to different lands and, and um, to different towns. But Jesus told him, go back home and witness and tell your people, your townspeople about it. And Jesus is saying the same thing to us today. We're to go into our communities, our neighborhoods, again, our workplaces, our schools, our grocery stores, wherever. And we're to be his witnesses 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Not just when we go to some foreign country for a week or two, but 24-7. We're to live a life on mission. So I want to close with this um, video clip. This is longer than 20 seconds like the previous one. But I, watch this carefully and listen. I think if we're serious about wanting to really remission the church, which I think is so important that we'd be able to do, we've got to kind of re-envision what church is. Um, I remember, remember the thing about here's the church and here's the steeple? Do you remember that when you were kids? I mean, here's the reality, folks. Here's the church, here's the steeple. Open the doors. And look, there's no people in there anymore because the fact is the church in America is losing ground big time. There's like 3,000 churches in this country that close every year. You can drive by a lot of empty ones near you, I'll bet. Um, they're saying that kids who grow up in the church, between eight, 18 and 25, half of them are leaving the church. There's a lot of empty churches. That's a problem. It's time to definitely remission the church. Or maybe you've seen this one like my brother taught me when I was little. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. And look, there's all the people lying down in the pews sleeping because it's so boring and they see it as completely irrelevant and disconnected to anything that has anything to do with anything. And the fact is that's how a lot of people see the church is totally disconnected from their passion and their problems in life. So in reality, maybe we need to move a little more to something like this. Remember, this is the way my Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Munson, taught me. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. And there is a possibility to remission your church that, that actually is a place of life-giving, uh, happiness, and people finding their joy in Christ and real community, and that's awesome. But that isn't far enough if we're serious about remissioning the church. Getting a church building full of people is not far enough. That was maybe okay for the bar we were willing to set years ago, but it's no longer going to work in the new changed landscape of our culture in America. You know, the fact is, until we remission the church and recommission people out of the church building, we'll never be able to reach our country or this world for Christ. You know, I was, if you think about the early church in like the year A.D. 38 or so, chapter 7, I think, Stephen's persecuted and he's killed. There was about 20,000 Christians probably worldwide at that point. Everybody got scared and they spread. They ran in fear and, and they, they ran to like over 200 Judean hamlets and villages. It was unplanned, but it, except by God and his spirit, it was the best evangelistic strategy ever because they carried with them the hope of Jesus Christ and they were sent, they went. And that began the most explosive period of church growth ever. You know, about 12 went up to Antioch. 12, what can 12 people do? What can one small group do? What can one collection of friends who love Jesus really do? What difference can we make?
Well, that 12, 60 years later, we're, we're a couple hundred thousand Christians. Why? Because they went and they carried the message of Jesus with them. So it's really more like this, isn't it? Here's, here's a building. You know, it may have a steeple, it may not. We got to open the doors and get the people out of the building and, and really get to that place where we're, we're not content to go to church, but we want to be the church. So if we revision, for example, our weekend gatherings and realize they're not an end in themselves, they're really, really important. We've got to gather for it, but they're really kind of a means to an end, aren't they? If the mission is the same, we've got to spread like the early church and there's a means to an end. Around our place at Mountain, uh, we, we think the end is reaching our community and transforming, so that means everybody is on mission. Everybody is a missionary. Weekend gatherings, they're like a locker room talk. They're like a huddle. We get together, we call the, we call the plays, we remind ourselves of the game plan, who we are, we pump each other up, and we say, now let's go get them. Gather to worship, depart to serve. That's old school. It's all the way back to the first century. It's what we need to be about today if we're serious about remissioning the church. I thought that clip was so good and talking about reimagining, repurposing the church and rethinking it. When I was preparing um, today's message, I came across one of the harshest, most jarring quotes um, and it was just so, like, shocking, and it, it went something like this. It said, if you choose not to accept this mission, you're essentially telling the world you can go to hell. Go to hell. And to me, I, growing up, when I thought that the worst thing you could ever say to anybody was go to hell. Right? People say it flippantly all the time. You see it in the movies. It's used as a slang. You know, people say it all the time. But as a Christian, I thought that was absolutely the worst thing you could ever say to another person was to curse them by actually mouthing the words, go to hell, because nothing is worse than that. Eternal separation from our God. And so when I read that, I was like, whoa, it just blew my mind. Let that sink in. If you choose not to accept this mission, you are essentially telling the people around you, go to hell. That is harsh. That is really jarring. Let's all stand. And so I am ending on this, this jarring uh, you know, note of, you know, but more than anything, I hope that it really convicts you. I hope that it is a punch in the gut. I hope that as we launch this campaign, every one of you are going to fall to the floor in pain because you are experiencing God's compassion for the lost. I, I hope all of you get kicked in the stomach and you experience the Greek word for compassion. And that we... Our God does not desire anyone to be lost, and we need to be about our Father's business.